This is the time of year uh, when we know Christmas is coming because of all the different Christmas movies and TV specials we see coming on, right? We all have our favorite Christmas movie. Uh, it's not the Christmas season until we get a chance to see that Christmas movie. Um, we all have that, right? I have mine, you have yours. Uh, I want to talk about a quote from a Christmas movie today, but it's not one of my favorites. But when I saw the quote, I said, that will work in a sermon. I have to use that. So preachers are always on the lookout for those types of things. It's from Polar Express. And in Polar Express, the conductor says to the little boy Chris on the train, he says, seeing is believing. But sometimes the most real things in the world are the things that we can't see. Seeing is believing, but sometimes some of the most real things in the world are the things that we can't see. Isn't that true? We see that all the time. And John, the Apostle John, who's writing this letter, is that's what he's trying to communicate because he's writing to this church that just went through a real difficult time. They have some uh, people come in who are known as false teachers who are telling them lies about who Jesus is, and they defended the truth. They held firm. They knew their scriptures well, but they kind of had this collision. And then do you know how after you like, kind of have a conflict, you walk away? I don't know, maybe this hasn't happened to you. It happens to me. But you walk away, and then you kind of wonder did I do that right? And, and you kind of start to second-guess yourself a little bit. Did, is that how that was supposed to go? And you have this doubt that comes in. And I think John is a good pastor, is a good apostle. He knew this church did a really great job, but he also knew that they'd also be kind of wondering this question. Did what we say, is that really true? Is God really real? Does God really live inside of us? like we said he did? I think Jonas knew that that would be a question, a doubt that would come up in their mind, and so he, he wanted to write them this letter, and maybe you're here this morning and you have that same question. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian, meaning you've come to the place where you recognize who Jesus is as Savior and Lord, and you said, Jesus, I repent. I want to give you my life. I ask that you forgive me for my sin, and you'd enter in. I want to follow you the rest of my days. Maybe you've done that. You became a follower of Jesus Christ. But now there's that time where maybe some doubt creeps in a little bit, and you're wondering, was that really real? Did I really do that? Did he really accept me? Did he really take me in? Or maybe you have never done that before, and this thing called relationship with God is kind of a new concept, and you don't even know if you have a relationship with God, and you're just kind of wondering, is God really real? Can he really come into a human heart and change things? And you have these questions and these doubts. Well, God wrote a book through the Apostle John, and he wrote a letter to address this exact thing that we could be dealing with, and I want to look at that today. And I think what we're going to see as we look at this today is, yes, indeed, it's true that some of the most real things in life are the things that we can't see. So let's take a look. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to 1 John chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible and you have one, we're glad you brought one. This book will change your life if, through the power of God if you let it. And the best way to get to 1 John is to start at the back. And go past Revelation, go past Jude, then you'll see 3 John, or 3 John, and you go 2 John, and then we'll be in 1 John. And that's where we're going to be looking at chapter 4. If you're in the Worship Center Bible, I'll be on page 1084. 1084. We're in a series called Down to Earth Love, where we're remembering the fact that Jesus Christ came to earth to be our Savior, and we're going to look at why we need a Savior today. And uh, it's also a reminder that he's going to come again. 
And the love that he brings is love that is real and love that is true. In this series, or in this sermon today, we're going to look at three aspects from this passage. We're going to look at the fact that God lives inside a Christian. God lives inside a Christian. And then as these people John was writing to, as he was writing to them, they had these doubts. And so we're going to see when you, look for, when you have doubts, you look for evidences. So we're going to see the evidence of truth and the evidence of love. So God lives inside a Christian, and we're going to see the evidence of truth that that is the case and the evidence of love that that is the case. And we're going to see this from 1 John chapter 4, and I'm going to focus on verses 13 to 16. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. The first thing we want to look at is the fact that God lives inside the Christian. God lives inside the Christian. Earlier in this, we saw that John's command is to love one another. And when that happens, one of the things that happens is we know that God takes residence and he lives inside of us. This verse says in three different times that God lives inside his children. Verse 13, it says, we remain in him and he in us. Verse 15, God remains in him and he in God. Verse 16, the one who remains in God remains in him. God takes residence inside of us. So how does this happen? Well, verse 13 tells us it happens by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he was on earth in John chapter 14 and chapter 16, he promised this gift, he called it. He said, the person that's going to come is a gift, and it's the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he says he's going to be an advocate. He's going to be a counselor. He's going to be one that is with you. But then he also says that this advocate, this counselor, the Holy Spirit, will live inside of you. So when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you become a Christian, when you get to that spot where you say, God, I ask forgiveness for my sin, I repent, I want to turn and follow you with all my heart, would you come into my life and begin a relationship with me? When you do that, at that moment, the Holy Spirit enters your life. Boom. He comes and he takes residence inside your heart. You see, some of the most real things are the things that we can't see, but that is so incredibly real. The Holy Spirit now takes residence inside of you. The Holy Spirit is God. So now God takes residence inside of you. So wherever you go as a Christian, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a walking, talking, breathing temple of the Holy Spirit. And you walk with the power of God inside of you. Ephesians 1.13 says this, In him you are also sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed. The Holy Spirit takes residence inside of us. And John wanted to assure his church that this is the case. He wanted to assure them that this is the case. They were smart people. They just went through a battle. And he wanted to come to them and say, When you doubt, you need to know that God has taken his residence inside of you. The Holy Spirit has come to make his home inside your heart. Well, when you doubt, what do you do? You look for truth, right? You look for evidences, like, how do I know for sure? 
How do I know for sure? And John knew that they would be in that spot, so I want to talk about what he gives them. First is the evidence of truth. The evidence of truth. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Well, let's back up a minute. You said some of the most important things are things that we can't see, but now he says we have seen and we have testified. Well, this part of the quote from Polar Express is true, right? Seeing is believing. And, but not all of us have seen, but the one who's writing this, the Apostle John, he's referring to he himself and the other apostles because they did see. They did see Jesus Christ. They did touch Jesus Christ. They did hear from him. They listened to him. It says in the beginning of this letter, he actually opens that way and says, the one we have seen, we have touched, we have listened to, the one we have dealt with, we've communed with, John saw him. And so he's testifying to that, but he also knows that we haven't. So he says, um, and we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. That word confesses. We use that a lot when we talk about coming to Jesus Christ and beginning a personal relationship with him. We say you must confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And John is affirming that here, but he's taking it one step further. He's saying it's not just a confession where you just say this confession and then it's all said and done, but he said once you confess, then as a Christian, you grow into those confessions. They become more real to you. And as those confessions, those truths of the faith become more real to you, that's evidence that God is living inside your heart and you know that you are a child of God. So when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus Christ and you start seeing these confessions like Jesus is the Son of God, like he's come to save the world from their sins, these kinds of confessions come out. You begin to wrap your heart around those by the Spirit of God inside of you. You begin to believe those. You say, yes, that's it. And then you begin to say, I want to grow more in those. I want to learn more what that means. And as you're doing that, that's an evidence that the Holy Spirit of God is in your life. You see, he lays out a ton of theology here. Theology and doctrine. Doctrine means set of beliefs, and doctrine is a great thing. It guides us as Christians. We need it. And he lays out the doctrine here in these verses. In verse 14, he talks about the world Savior, this concept of the world. And the world he's referring to is the world that has fallen. After God created the world, he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, they rebelled against God. And the Bible tells us the minute that happened, that action affected the entire human race to now where we have a sinful nature inside of us. We're marked by sin and rebellion because of what happened. And we need someone to save us from that. So that's the picture of the world he has. It's good theology that he lays out. Then he talks about Jesus in verse 14. And he says, Jesus was sent from God the Father. God the Father sent his Son, meaning Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the one true and only Son of God. And so he lays out this theological concept. This is another confession that we grow in as Christians. Then he lays out the focus of his mission in verse 14, to be the Savior of the world. You see, God saw that this world was in its fallen state, yet loved the world so much he wanted to be in relationship with the world, so he knew that someone had to come and bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful people, and that was Jesus Christ's mission, and he did that on the cross. On the cross, judgment upon Christ and our sin was met with the mercy that God extends to us. Mercy and judgment meet there. 
And that's the mission of Jesus. That's something that's a confession. When you confess that you're a Christian, you're confessing in the fact of the gospel that Jesus Christ loved us. Uh, God loved us enough to send his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. And we learn and we grow deep. And there's a thing in our heart that says, I want to know more about what that is. And that longing to know more is that evidence of truth that God is residing in your heart. And then there's in verse 16 the motivation, God's love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You see this motivation that God had to know that God is a loving God, that he's a God who is full of loving kindness and grace and mercy. Those are confessions that we learn and we grow in and we desire from to be, uh, to know as, to affirm in our hearts that God is in us. You see, these are the confessions of the Christian faith. And John is saying that you know he is living in you when your heart is warm to these confessions, when you long for these things, when you long for this truth and you want to dive in to know more of these things. In southern Australia in 1857, they placed a lighthouse in what the area was called Cape St. George. And as they were making this lighthouse, a group of engineers got together and they knew it was going to be a costly project, but they really wanted to make uh, have the... Uh, the community bid and have them do this, so they tried to cut costs where they could. And so they placed the lighthouse as close as they could to the quarry where all the materials are. But in doing so, they put it in the actual wrong spot where it should have been in the harbor. Because ships, when they go into a harbor, they look at the lighthouse, and they, the lighthouse draws them in as they sail towards that lighthouse. And the problem is, is where they placed the lighthouse would cause these ships to sail into this whole rocky mess that would cut up these boats as they went in. Over 25 to 35 shipwrecks took place in this area during this time because the sailors were looking for this lighthouse and they were going towards it. And it wasn't placed in the right spot because they wanted to save money instead of placing it where it needed to be placed. Well, finally, in 1899, they tore down the lighthouse and they moved it to where it should have been placed and there were no more shipwrecks after that. You see, doctrine is like that. Good theology is like that to a Christian. We have, it's, it's like a lighthouse that pulls us through life and keeps us on the straight and narrow, pulling us and drawing us to Jesus Christ and our life in him. And it's so critically important that we know these confessions and these truths and these doctrines and this theology because it guides us in our life here. And if we get off course from this and we get into theology that isn't right or doctrine that isn't right and we get off course, we can miss our mark, but even... But also with that, we can also mislead many other people as well. So good theology is so important. And so we, when we talk about these confessions, they're good. And then when your heart is warm to them, John says that's an evidence that God is living inside of us. Well, then John gives us another evidence as well. It's the evidence of love. Look at verse 16. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Isn't that an amazing promise? He's saying we as Christians have come to know, but not just know, we come into know and believe that the love that God has for us, that's a wonderful gift. One of the ways we know that God's taking residence in our heart is we know that he loves us. We know and believe that he loves us. Do you know that God loves you? 
Do you believe this? Do you see this? It's, uh, this whole thing is a, one of the pinnacles of this whole letter that John's writing to this church. He's saying, you will know that God lives inside you because the God lives inside Christians. Then you will know that because your hearts will be warmed to the truth in these beliefs and beliefs. And then you will also know that because you will know that God loves you. And when you know that God loves you, then you also begin to do two things. First, you begin to love God back. See, in our fallen state as rebellious sinners, we don't have it in ourselves to love God back. That's why the Bible talks about when we were enemies to God, he demonstrated love to us. But when we have this reality and takes residence inside of us, now we can love God back. But then also we love one another. John is saying in verse 16, when you have these things, we have the assurance that God lives in us. Now, that's not an arrogance. It's not a prideful thing. A way to look at it is that we have a settled state of mind and heart that we belong to God. Doesn't that sound good? This church needed that, that he was writing to. Do you need that? Do you need a settled state of mind and heart that you belong to God as a Christian? If you're following Jesus and he lives inside of you, you can have that. And so he goes down and kind of uncovers a little bit this evidence of love, that God loves you. How do you have joy in this world? How do you overcome sin in your life? How do you overcome the evil things? It's to know how much God loves you. When you know how much he loves you, when you understand that he rejoices over you with singing, when you understand that he is crazy in love with you, when you understand and line up with Romans 8.38 that says, neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor anything in this present world or anything that's going to come tomorrow, there's nothing created that's going to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus' his Son. That's an amazing gift. And when you know that, it transforms you. When you know that, it gives evidence that God is living inside of you. But it's not only God's love for you. It's your love for God. Do you want to know God better? Is there this desire in you that says, God, I want to know you. God, I want to know your love. One of the greatest ambitions of my life, God, is that I would come and know who you are. Does that speak of your soul? Does the thought of how do I get closer to God fill your mind? You see, this is critically, critically important. This is one of the evidences. When you have that, you know that he's taking residence inside your heart. But it's not only God loving us, us loving God, it's our love for other people. Because when we're in that relationship, that is what comes next. It's this overflow that comes out that we love others. Do you consider others' needs above your own? Remember, that's our definition of love. Do we consider others' needs above our own? You see, as we move in these things, not that they're perfected, not that they're there, but there's this desire, this thing that's been awakened in us that's different before. When we move in these things, we can know that God has taken his residence inside of us. Now, this is tough teaching. And you may be saying, not really. God loves me. What's so tough about that? But my goal in the rest of the sermon is to show us how much we need a Savior. To show us how much we need what we celebrate this time of year, that God sent his Son to be the Savior for our sins. We need the Savior because of this teaching, and here's why. To respond to this kind of amazing love requires us to fully renounce all the other loves in our life. 
If we're going to correctly respond to the love that God has for us that we see here, it's going to require us to renounce, to say no to all those other things, all those other loves that we carry in our heart. And that's not easy to do. Because some of those things are good things. Those are things we long for. Those are things we want to do. But you know what? It's not often the bad things that pull us away from making God the chief ambition of our heart. It's the good things. And not only just the good things of this life, like family and and a good job and, and food and these things, but it's also the good things of the Christian life. Sometimes a quest to know about God can be stronger in your heart than knowing God himself, and that's an idol. That's a sin. Anything we place in our hearts that's a higher priority or a higher love or a higher passion than Jesus Christ is an idol. An idol is a false god. It's something we worship. It pulls us away from true worship of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. True Christianity, hear this, true Christianity takes us to a place where our appetite for knowing God becomes the strongest ruling passion in our heart. True Christianity takes us to a place where our appetite to know God becomes the strongest ruling passion that's inside our heart. We want to know God more than we want to be healed and out of pain. We want to know God more than we want to be free from guilt. We want to know God more than we want our spouse to treat us the right way. We want to know God more than we want reconciliation in this relationship. We want to know God more than we want our kids to walk with God. We want to know God more than we want to see our addicted son off drugs. You see, it's this whole, until you want God more than these other things, you are not free. You are in bondage. And that's not Christianity. Because your mind is so occupied on those things So unless you want God more than you want to have a relationship with this person, when your mind is all on this relation, having a relationship, I gotta have a relationship, I gotta have you are now in bondage to trying to make that happen. That's not the freedom you'll experience in Jesus Christ. But when God is the chief pursuit of your heart, when he is the one who is the love above all other loves, and that's what you go for, now you are set free. And you can tell him all those things you want. You can tell him those things you want to be. But he knows and you know that he is the chief person, the chief pursuit, the chief passion, the one and only true God that's living in our hearts. You see, that's true Christianity. And all other loves, all other desires, all other things have to bow to the allegiance we have in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. He is the chief pursuit of our life. See, that's Christianity. And that's where this gets hard, because that's true discipleship. Christian counselor Larry Crabb tells a story that kind of emphasizes this. He says that he uh, has a life group. We have life groups here. A life group is a time where people gather in a home around a Bible, and they study the Bible, they pray with one another, get to know each other, and and get get to become really close friends with each other. And Larry Crabb says one day he and his wife were in their house and a member of their life group called and they said, we have some horrible news. We need to come over and talk to you guys. Will you come and spend some time with us? And Larry Crabb and his wife said, yes, come on over. And so they came over and what happened was the husband just went public that he had an affair with his wife. And so there's this marriage in crisis and they come in and it was very clear that the man was humiliated and he 
was turning towards his wife, Larry Crabb says, and he was just begging her, saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so incredibly sorry. Will you please, please forgive me? I promise this will never happen again. And he's sobbing and he's sobbing. And Larry Crabb said, as he's watching this take place, he noticed that he wasn't really moved by this man's actions. And then he noticed that the man's wife wasn't really moved by that either. And Larry Crabb said, it was like God opened his eyes at that time and he thought, What would it take to touch this man's soul so that he would want God more than he'd want his wife to forgive him? What would it take to touch this man's soul that he would want God more than he'd want his wife to forgive him? Because until his desire for God is stronger than his desire for his wife's forgiveness, his wife is his God. He was doing all these things. He was sobbing. He was repenting. He's saying, I promise I'll never do this again. He's bringing flowers. And his wife was not moved. And then he got mad that his wife was not moved. Why? Because his moving towards his wife had nothing to do with him worshiping God and obeying God. It had everything to do with him worshiping the feeling that I'm off the hook and forgiven. And that's an idol. That's something else other than God. You see, it's that. It's not, I'm not saying that repentance and forgiveness is a bad thing and we shouldn't seek it. We should, but we have to put the horse in front of the cart. We have to make sure that our first allegiance in this life is to God and wanting to know Him is bigger than all things, even the things that cut to our heart. That's why this is a hard teaching. Even the things that we long for. I'm not saying forgiveness is wrong, but what makes a Christian a Christian is that the strongest ruling passion and desire in your heart is to know God and to know Jesus Christ because that's going to pull you through all those other things in a way that is healthy, in a way that is strong, and it's going to set it right. We can ask God for healing, but we must want to know God more than our desire to be healed. We can ask God for good things in this life, but our desire to know God must be greater than anything this world has to offer. We can ask God to give us a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife, but the desire for that must submit itself first and foremost to the allegiance that God is the one who rules in my heart above all things. Otherwise, we are creating an idol. Otherwise, we are worshiping a false god. And that's not true Christianity. Now, there was a really, really smart guy named John Calvin who said the human heart is an idol factory. And what he meant is that we create and make all these little idols. We create and make all these loves that we place higher than God in our heart. Things like healing, things like a good life, things like forgiveness, things like all these things we just talked about. We create these things and we chase after these things like we're God. And we crank them out of our factory, idol factory heart like you wouldn't believe, right? That's who we are. That's part of the human curse from the fall of Adam and Eve. We are idol makers. We create these things. You see, this is why we need a Savior, Because when you're hearing me say this stuff and you're thinking, that is hard. How can I do that? How can I put Jesus as the highest priority of my life, even above my kids, even above all these things I desire, even above all these things I carry in my heart? How can I do that? See, the thing is you can't as a human being. 
What you have to do when you recognize that you have all these idols, all these other loves that are pulling you, when you recognize that Jesus Christ is not the chief ambition of your heart, he's not the chief pursuit, when you realize that, you get on your knees and you say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I need a Savior because I need to be saved from my idol factory sin-making heart that just is going absolutely crazy, cranking out one sin, one idol after the other, and I can't stop it. Will you come and rule in my life, and will you become the chief passion of my soul? And you beg your Savior to come and transform your life. You see, that's real Christianity. You don't play around in the little loves and just throw a little church on top and throw a little Christian music here and, and then walk your life like you're this disciple of God. No, you've got to get to the heart of the matter. And the fact is we are all a bunch of idol-making, sin-creating people who are in desperate need of Jesus Christ in order to be brought into a holy God. We need him. We need his mission. We need the cross. And so we are driven to our knees to say, God, we need you. So when you're here and you're saying, that's too hard. I create all these idols all the time. How can you say, what am I supposed to do? You go on your knees before Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. We need what we celebrate this Christmas season. We needed God to come to earth in the form of a human being, to go to the cross, to take the punishment for our sin, to set us free. And now when Jesus becomes the chief pursuit of our heart, we experience true freedom. Do you know where we see this evidence that he is not where he needs to be in our life? In our prayers. We see it. When I think about the things I pray for and I kind of look at my prayer list and I write these things down, I sit and I have to look and I say, man, where am I placing Jesus? I want you to become the sole passion and ambition of my heart on my list. Why did that kind of drop off? And we've got to put that back up there. And we look at things like our prayer requests and the things we ask for prayer on, and I know this one's going to get me in trouble a little bit, but that's okay. I want to admit, I'm not being cold or harsh, and, and when it comes to our prayer requests, you put anything you want on that prayer request, and we will pray for you, I promise. I love praying for the prayer requests. I love praying for you. I told you that as your pastor. But I have to admit, when I look at these prayer requests and I pray through healing and I pray through job and I pray through money and I pray through all this, I I do get to a spot where I say, like I did with my own heart, my own life, is there anybody who's asking God that he become the chief passion in their life? If there's, is there anybody who's begging God that he would become the ultimate passion and everything else in life would take second place to him because we all have this struggle. He's not there in our life yet, but is, are we asking for it? Are we begging for it? Are we saying, God, would you come and transform my heart to the point where I love nothing else like I love you? Will you come and transform my heart to the point where you are solely in first place and there's nothing else in my life that takes that first place from you? Is anyone begging God like that? You see, when that happens, that's true Christianity. Not that you have to be perfect there, but you beg and you ask and you go before your Savior. See, that's biblical following Jesus, realizing we can't do this without him. If we settle for a life where the chief ambitions are things like a good job or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife or children or children who are Christian or healings or good health or a reconciled relationship or knowledge about God. All those things are good in of themselves. 
But if they become the first things and replace the chief desire of our heart, which should be Jesus Christ, then we will live an empty, shell-like, Christian look-alike and not the real deal. And Jesus Christ came to earth to give us the real deal. Why? Because he loves us so incredibly much. If you are in that spot where you're saying, I hear all that, but I don't know if I can do all that, you're in a good spot. Because what you need to do is go to your Savior and say, Jesus, will you change my heart? Will you reorganize the priorities of my life? You see, there's another evidence. Not only is it the evidence of truth, the evidence of love, there's also a third evidence. And this evidence is kind of a two-sided coin. On the one side of the coin, it's this realization that you have regret, that you have not loved God the way you should. And you're like, man, I wish I could just love him more. Have you ever felt that? Like, God, I just want to love you more. See, if you felt that side of the coin, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing at all. That's a good thing. That's an evidence that God is doing something in your life. The other side of that coin, though, you have that regret, and the other side of the coin is a yearning. So God, help me to do that. God, help me to love you more. God, I see that I don't. I see that you are not getting the love in my heart. You are not the chief place in my soul. You are not the chief pursuit, my chief ambition in life. But God, I long for that to happen. Will you come now and change my life? You came to earth, so you draw us close to you. Would you please do that in my heart? You see, when that thing's happening in your life, that's a good thing. That's evidence the Holy Spirit's working in your life. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to worship idols. The Holy Spirit wants you to worship Jesus Christ. And he pulls you into this battle and this tension. And that's a good thing. I want us to respond this morning to the evidences that we presented. I want us to respond first to the evidences of truth. And then I want us to respond to the evidences of love. And the way we're going to respond to the evidence of truth is I'm going to pray in a minute, but I'm going to invite the worship team up at this time. And we're going to sing a song. It's a Christmas carol that is rich with good theological truth about who God is and what he has come uh, to earth for. And as we sing that, let it be a declaration of the truth that we know these things. And this is what we stand for as a Christian church. And then after we sing that and declare that truth, I'm going to come up and talk about how we're going to respond in the evidence of love. So I ask you to bow your heads with me as I pray, and then we'll worship together. Jesus, we acknowledge that we need you. We acknowledge that apart from you, our idle factory-making heart will just go absolutely insane. And we will chase after everything this world has to offer and then some. We acknowledge now that we need a Savior. We need one who will pay the penalty for our sin and we need one who will create a new heart that turns us towards the heart of God the way you intended. So will you come? Will you help us now to declare these truths? And will you let these truths sink down into our, the recesses of our mind and our heart that we would believe them not just intellectually, but we will believe them by surrounding our lives around them. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we worship. As we are singing these things, I, and we sang that last chorus.
I began thinking about my heart and how quick I am to make these idols and make these other things I worship. I just said, you know, King of Heaven, come now. Come here. Come inside my life. Come inside my heart. Reorganize, reorder. Take all the things. Blow out all the false idols that try to compete with you and and take that one and only place that's reserved for you in my life. You see, I think that's what we need to do this week. That's what we need to respond to this evidence of love by responding to God in that way. So I'm going to encourage you this week to carve out some time in your schedule, maybe four times this week, 15 minutes to read this passage. It's in your bulletin. We have a reading plan. You can look at there. But more than that, more than reading, look and just do some introspection and say, God, are you really the chief pursuit of my heart? Are you really the one I long for over all things in this life? And you're probably going to find that that's not the case, and that's okay, but that's when you say, God, will you come? King of heaven, will you come and reorder what's going on in my heart and my life? Savior, will you come and save me from these things and make me new? See, that's real Christianity. And that's what we celebrate and the reason why God came to earth, that we may really follow him. I'm going to pray and give you a blessing, and then we'll be on our way. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word that guides us. I thank you for your spirit that leads us. I ask this week that you would help us as your Crossview Church family to take inventory of our hearts and our lives this Christmas season. And if there's anything in our hearts or lives that are not pleasing to you, will you please point that out and save us from that. Turn us from that to you by the power of your spirit, Father. We thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And I pray you'd bask your kindness upon us as your people then that would be moving towards repentance in you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.